If you don't know me, my name's Joe. Um, I'm one of the, the elders at this church, and along with, with Holly Shabs and Matteo, we, we run the youth. Um, if you're here for the first time, you're wondering what's going off. Um, yeah, it's not like this every week, um, but we're into our Christmas series for this year, where we try and shake it up a little bit, get the youngsters involved, which we really enjoy. So yeah, thank you guys for, for pushing yourselves out of your comfort zone for our entertainment. Thank you for serving as well with refreshments handing out programs as well. It's uh, yeah, It's been great. We love spending our Friday nights with you lot, even though you're a bit mental. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been brilliant. Thank you again. Um, in terms of preaching plan for the next three weeks, um, there isn't one in simple terms. <laughs> but we did get together, myself, Paul, and Ash, and agree at the very least that we're not going to preach on the same thing. Um, so lucky for me, I get first dibs. So I've chosen to look at Mary. Uh, obvious choice, you might think, um, possibly the most famous female in world history. Um, but I hope that by looking at the text that we had read for us, uh, we're going to get a bit of an insight into Mary that may challenge some of our preconceptions. Don't know if anyone saw the new Batman film when it came out, Robert Pattinson, proving that there's life beyond Twilight. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was really good. Um, it was pretty dark, it has to be said. Um, it was a far cry from the fun, light-hearted Adam West 1960s version. I'll, uh, yeah, I'll say that much. But one thing that did kind of stick out to me when I was watching it was the soundtrack, um, which I thought was really good. It was similarly kind of dark and a bit spooky. Um, and there was one particular piece that really stood out to me, uh, and it was a kind of twisted minor key version of Schubert's Ave Maria famous old Latin hymn, often sung at funerals, um, and there's a section of it which roughly translates to Hail Mary, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. And in the film, it, it accompanies the bad guy who's the Riddler. Um, I'll try not to ruin it for you if you've not seen it, but he's depicted as growing up in an orphanage and singing the song as a boy as part of a choir. And there's kind of an air of desperation about it, um, like he's sort of pleading with Holy Mary to come and get him out of his tragic circumstances. And when no help comes, and later on in the film, he commits various atrocities, this sort of haunting rendition plays in the background as he turns his pain and his torment on those around him. The implication is that it's kind of now it's his victims that need to plead with Mary to come and save them, if you like. Um, yeah, granted, that's a pretty grim way to start a Christmas talk. Sorry for killing the vibe slightly, um, but it's relevant to where I'm going, I promise. So I'm watching the film, and I start thinking about the place that Mary occupies in our culture and how we think of her. Now, we all think of Mary as central to the Christmas story. And when I was listening to the song and looking at the lyrics, I started thinking about how over the years in church history, we've taken Mary and we've sort of put her on this pedestal of piety and holiness. And we've taken this idea that she kind of exists on a level that we can't attain to, that we can't get anywhere near. You know, like the Riddler, we need to sort of plead with her to impart some of her goodness and holiness onto us. You know, she's almost taken on this kind of angelic nature thing. And when, I, th I think when most of you picture her in your mind's eye, you automatically see either a stained glass window or a classical painting of some kind. And usually in one of these images, she's wearing this kind of far away sort of expression, like she's kind of too virtuous to exist amongst those mere mortals. And she's usually sort of pure and white and got like a beautiful shawl or a halo of some kind. 
And everything about her appearance tells us that she's far more holy than we are. And then you come to read this account at the start of Luke, and I, I just can't quite fathom how we went from the biblical Mary to the stained glass window, whiter than white, smells of roses version. So I guess I'd like to sort of invite you here today just to sort of leave that image at the door just for a few moments and consider her as we find her here in Luke chapter 1. What first prompted me to consider this text we're going to look at was actually the first line of the poem that the, the youths read for us at the start. It said, a teenage girl had her life interrupted, her plans reconstructed when she was entrusted with something beyond human measure. I think that's a pretty nifty way to sum up Mary as we find her in the start of the Gospels. And kind of continuing with the theme of music and poetry, I want us to look at the song that Mary sings in Luke chapter 1 after she finds out that she's pregnant. And I very much hope that it will give us a better insight into her character than a stained glass window or a fancy painting or a Latin requiem mass. Um, I've only really got one point, you'll be pleased to know. Um, so yeah, you'll be home in time for Strictly. Um, so let's dive in and let's have a bit, bit of a closer look. So at first glance, you might consider a song or a poem in the book of Luke as a little bit out of place, perhaps. Verse 3, Luke tells us himself that he has carefully considered what he's going to put in his account, and it wants, he wants it to be orderly. Now, this is not going to be so much a story as like an article in the Financial Times, maybe. You know, it's going to be ordered and factual, carefully written. It's going to be no wasted ink. Luke is going to mull over every stroke of his pen to achieve his ultimate goal, which is to convince this guy called Theophanus that what he's saying is true. So weirdly, you might think he includes this, this song. Not particularly pivotal to his argument, you might think. But I do believe it's there for good reason in that he wants to bring home to Theophanus through Mary's insight the scale of what's about to happen. If you look at, just scan your eyes over some of the verses, you see Mary references to the descendants of Abraham, to the different generations. He wants to get across what a pivotal moment in history this is going to be. And there's almost a kind of Old Testament vibe about Mary's song. It could probably easily slot in somewhere in the Psalms, perhaps. There's thousands of years worth of prophecy and temple tradition coming to fruition. Mary understood this clearly from what she says. Now, I've, I've already mentioned how we see her in our culture, but in light of the scale of what's about to happen, we get a clear indication of where she sees herself in God's grand plan of salvation. I think it's an attitude that we could do well to adopt ourselves perhaps when we think about where we fit into God's purposes. So Mary finds out that she's going to give birth to Jesus, and there are certain things that are said to her in the lead-up to this passage which might make you think that she would have reason to feel quite pleased with herself. Verse 28, the angel Gabriel refers to her as highly favoured. And then her friend Elizabeth, who presumably she's known for quite some time, suddenly starts treating her a little bit differently. So if you just go back a little bit before this passage, verse 42 and 43 say this. In a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so highly favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
I think Elizabeth's already putting Mary on that pedestal a little bit that we spoke about. You know, I'm so favored that you would even come near me. You're going to bear the Son of God. You're a big deal now. And all of a sudden, whilst this scene is beautiful and joyful, it's hard not to detect that subtle sort of shift in their relationship. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to call Mary's song a sort of direct rebuttal to that idea, but it's hard not to notice the contrast from how Elizabeth sees her and how Mary sees herself. So let's look at it again. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. <clears throat> I think Mary sees herself as a recipient of God's mercy as much as you or me or anybody else. While so many people through the generations have given Mary this starring role in the salvation story, I think she just sees herself as part of the audience. Verse 49, she says, the mighty one has done great things for me. Now just consider for one second what happens if you alter one word of that sentence. You might think it more appropriate for Mary to say something along the lines of, the mighty one has done great things through me. Now after all, she's going to carry this child, she's got to raise it, she's got to meekly stand by as he's mistreated and tortured and executed. You'd think she'd want at least a little bit of the credit for going through all of that. I just don't think she sees it that way. Yes, she says all generations will call me blessed, but only because of what she receives rather than anything she achieves. It might have been so easy for her to look at you know, how she'd lived her life or try and pick out some aspect of her character to say, yeah, I bet, I bet that's why God chose me. But humility is the name of the game, as verse 48 tells us. I think it's important that we kind of understand the nature of the word humble in that verse as well. Because um, if you read it the wrong way, you might think that Mary is saying that because she's been humble, that's why God has chosen to bless her. But I think what she's actually referring to is her like humble circumstances. You know, she's young, she's poor, she's on the fringes of society, and into that soil, God has chosen to plant the saviour of mankind. This immediately put me in mind of a verse from, from 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 verse 27, when the Apostle Paul's trying to quieten down some of the boasting and the arguing that's ignited within the Corinthian church. He says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. If anyone had a reason to boast, you would think it would be Mary. But she recognizes that the mighty one has done great things for me and he's been merciful to her. So as we come towards Christmas then, I want us to just think again, as I've said, about where we see ourselves in the grand narrative of God's big story. Now, I'm sure I hope that a lot of you would agree with what Mary sings. You know, those of us who call ourselves Christian will claim with Mary that he's been mindful of our humble circumstances and he's shown mercy to us. But in practice... And in the sort of deepest recesses of our souls, is that really what we think? Now, just as God visited a poor, destitute young girl and bestowed an unimaginable blessing on her, 
he also came to us as spiritually destitute and blessed us for no other reason than that he loved us. Sounds amazing, doesn't it? But there's implications that come with that that we might consider a little bit more problematic. If we're to learn anything from Mary, it's that God's favor is universally available. It's on offer to you, whether you're a priest or a prostitute or a CEO or an inmate or anybody else. Now, most of us, I imagine, will think of ourselves as good moral people. Perhaps we don't like being stuck in the same category as prostitutes or criminals or poor teenage peasant girls, as in, is the case with Mary. It's a famous theologian by the name of John Calvin, and he, refers to, he referred to human beings as totally depraved. All of a sudden, this is starting to feel a bit more uncomfortable, right? You know, we, he's saying that we suffer from the same kind of spiritual poverty which we ourselves cannot put right and affects us all regardless of status. I remember speaking to Ash a few months ago and we were chatting about a Christianity Explored course he was running um, and we were talking about some of the questions that were popping up. Yeah, and I was thinking that most of the questions he'd be getting would be about like science or sex or something like that. And he said, no, actually, one of the biggest barriers people can't get their heads around is the idea of universal forgiveness. I.e. the same forgiveness that he offers me, he offers to people who I consider to be inferior to myself. Now, naturally, we think some people aren't worth God's time for whatever reason, deep down, I think. And I'm sure if you spoke to some of the bigwigs around in Mary's day, they would have measured her through their own moral standards and considered her a poor choice to receive God's mercy and favor. Now, she's too young. She's poor, she's not educated, she's a woman. You know, fast forward 2,000 years, the categories may have changed, but the idea remains the same. Now we'll happily sing, won't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But when we look at people around us, we still construct this moral hierarchy and give ourselves a place on it. If I can just paint like a hypothetical situation for one minute. You know, we're into winter now. So you're walking down the road in the freezing cold and you see a homeless guy huddled up in a shop doorway. I'm sure your initial thought would be one of pity. But be honest with yourself. Has it ever flashed through your mind just for a second when you look at this guy? Boy, you messed up. You know, you must have made some pretty more poor moral choices to end up where you have you know, you either didn't pay your rent or you got into drugs or you didn't try hard enough in school. And in the grand scheme of things, I made better moral choices in life than you did. I'll hold my hand up and admit to thinking that at least once in my life. And I spent six years working for a homeless charity. In the eyes of God, this man is no different to us. And we both need his grace and mercy in equal measure. We'll happily say we agree with that, I'm sure. But in practice, I'd argue sometimes we are prone to forget it. So what would Mary say to us then if we fall into the trap of thinking like that? Verse 50, she says, God is merciful to those who fear him. Verse 53, she says, he sent the rich away empty-handed. Verse 52, he's brought down rules from their thrones. Crucially, I think, 
for the purposes of today, verse 51, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. I think Mary's saying to us, if you can't put away your pride and moral superiority in front of God, this gospel ain't for you. If you can't, if you can't put yourself in a position where you recognize your helplessness, and this gospel ain't for you. Mary knew what she was. Now look at verse 48 again. He'd been mindful to the humble state of his servant. She knew she wasn't bringing anything to the table when it came to bringing about salvation. And similarly, those of us who would come to Jesus must come with empty hands. One of my favorite hymns, and we don't sing, sing so much anymore, I'm sure some of you will know it, has a verse in it that says this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. How ironic is it that we get a lesson in humility and gratitude from someone who has been venerated and worshipped over the centuries? Now, honestly, I think if she could see what she'd been turned into, I think she'd be utterly mortified, Mary. Ave Maria, gratia plena. Hail Mary, full of grace. Certainly no doubt about that. But crucially, the grace that she was filled with was not self-generated. She had no grace of her own that she could impart to us as the Riddler thought she might. She can only point us to the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. She said, my soul glorifies the Lord. and My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And I hope that Christmas can be a time where we can humble ourselves before God who showed mercy to humanity's weakness. And there's two, two sides to a lot of our Christmases, isn't there? There's the side of us that wants to show goodwill to men, you know, and we'll get in touch with Aunt Bertha who we can't stand. Or we might donate a shoebox to a less fortunate child. Well, then there's this other part of it, isn't there, where we want to indulge, we want to treat ourselves, we want to pat ourselves on the back a little bit. I'm certainly not saying that there's anything wrong with enjoying yourself at Christmas time, but in and amongst all the festivities, let's not forget our position before God and how much he's shown mercy to us. So if you're here today listening to this gospel and you consider yourself a fine, upstanding member of society, you might consider this a bit of a tough pill to swallow. You know, it's a big subject. Any of us here would be happy to speak with you more about it afterwards if you've got questions. There's just one verse I want you to sort of take away and leave ringing in your ears, if I may. And it comes from Mark chapter 10, verse 15, where Jesus is preaching and he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. In other words, if you can't strip away any pretension and come with empty hands, then you can't receive the kingdom of God. Mary understood this. She got this down to a T. It's an idea that gets fleshed out later on in the Gospels. As Jesus spends his time with tax collectors, and promiscuous women, sinners, if you like. And he dies between two petty criminals whilst inviting one of them to share paradise with him. Can we put ourselves in the same boat as them? Because if you can, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to you.